You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Good morning. Good evening. Oh, good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm Grace. I'm Chelsea. We're the Good Evening Girls. We are, and you're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Everyone's favorite pod word crosscast. <gasps> yes! yes! Okay. Success! We okay. just did a really bad high five. <laughs> um, that was amazing. Yeah. Okay. okay. We did it. Cool. Well, how many weeks? over? <laughs> yeah, bye. Thank you. How many weeks in a row has it been that we fucked that up? At least what, five. This is our 26th episode, so 20. No, we just started doing that <laughs> yeah. in the past couple episodes. So you Even heard then, it here first. I, when I was saying it, I was like, I don't know if this is right. Like, <laughs> my brain can't wrap itself. I need to write it down. Yes, you should put it in your notes. I'll um, think about it. Yeah. Then I have to remember to put it in my notes, which is a whole other thing. It is. It is. I mean, it's early. Like we say... All the time. It's early in the morning here. It's, the fact that we even get our research done in time for the podcast is a feat within itself. So. And we have a whole like week to do it. I know. Although I was listening to another podcast and they were like, sorry, guys. We're, it's like Sunday afternoon. We're tired. And, and the person was like, you could say that about like any time in the day. Like, sorry, guys. It's Monday night. Like, <laughs> <laughs> It's true. We're just idiots. We are. And it's that's fine. that. Thanks for joining us on this crazy roller coaster of a ride of our idiocy. Idiocracy? Idiocy. I'm not sure. <laughs> See? <laughs> you tell us. Yeah, let us know, please, in the reviews of this podcast. Idiocracy is a movie. It is, with uh, Owen Wilson's brother. Right. <laughs> Sorry, that, that must suck to be... Oh, whatever, I don't feel bad for you. You're obviously rich and successful. Okay. <laughs> Luke Wilson, there we go. There he is. <laughs> um, Owen Wilson was in the crossword this week. It was, yeah. Well, not the New York Times. Was it the Chris um, Christopher Adams? I think so. It was like... Actor known for saying wow. <laughs> Look up Owen Wilson wow compilation on YouTube. Yes. I actually had, we actually had a coworker who one day had to place an order over the phone through Staples and did the whole phone call in an <laughs> Owen Wilson voice. But he could not speak above a whisper in the Owen Wilson voice. And so <laughs> the Staples the, guy was like, sir, can you please just, can you speak up, please, sir? <laughs> And I was sitting in the corner trying not to laugh too loud. Anyway, so that's fun. I had to be there. Sorry. You, yeah. just, you don't get it. You just don't get it. Um, do you have any corrections corners? I have not, more of like a further clarification corner. Cool. It's not really about my topic, but I was like reading up some stuff and thought I would bring it up on the podcast because if you've been listening, you have probably heard me a couple of times say some disparaging remarks about missionaries. <laughs> 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 and I've never really, like, explained why I don't like missionaries. And I'm not trying to say that all religious people are bad or all missionaries are bad. But I do feel like missionaries have very positive connotation to them. And I think we need to question those things. And I was, what want, what brought me to talk about this on the podcast that I was reading, this happened a couple years ago. There was a missionary who, his name was, like, John Chow. He went to some really remote island um, like illegally without permit. These people have said like, don't come here. And he was like, I'm going to go there anyways and like preach the word of God or whatever. And they shot him with arrows and he died. And it right, was- Well, actually he left and then he came back and they yeah, shot no, him he, again. Yeah, he came back like three times. I okay. mean, the story yeah. is crazy, but I was yeah. reading an article that interviewed other missionaries on like what, you know, what they thought about this. I want to add that, um, Someone who's friends with Chow, his name is John Middleton Ramsey, said, A lot of people have said these people obviously want to be left alone, so we should respect their wishes. Well, my ancestors were also savages that wanted to be left alone. Uh, um, yeah. Um, That's, like, basically my whole point is kind of, like, missionaries push their ideas on other, like, cultures and people that they don't really know anything about, and you're just assuming that, like, you somehow know better than them, and you can, quote-unquote, save them. And it's just, like, right. basically white supremacy. 
So hiding under missionary work. Yes. Um, but I was hopeful because, um, okay, hold on. The uh, comp- or the organization, the evangelical organization that the guy who died like worked for, dis- after the fact, described him as a martyr and said, quote, the privilege of sharing the gospel has often involved great cost. We pray that John's sacrificial efforts will bear eternal fruit in due season. Uh, I think feel like that's kind of dangerous, but I was given a little bit of hope because there was an excerpt from Andrew Millman, who is a missionary from uh, Colorado, and he said um, that he he serves like a Protestant, a progressive Protestant denomination, and he went through extensive training on cultural competency, post-colonial theory, and faith-rooted organizing. Quote, I was not there to save souls or to convert people, but was instead sent to live in solidarity with marginalized communities while working for holistic, systematic reform. I think Chow's decision was uninformed, arrogant, and self-serving. He has reinforced the stereotype of all missionaries as brash young colonizers trying to tame, quote, primitive tribes. There we go. Yeah. So anyways, if you want more information about, like, missionary work and other stuff like that, there is a um, organization called No White Saviors. Org. They're also on Instagram as No White Saviors. They are an advocacy campaign, and they're led by mostly women. They're, most of them are from Uganda. There is one Amer- white American woman, and she is a former missionary, so she kind of gives her – she's like she calls herself like a reformed missionary, missionary in recovery. She lives in Uganda now. Um, but anyways, they have a really good Instagram. Um, with, it's incredible, yeah. Yeah, but it gives a lot of information, um, and, yeah, you should check it out. Also, they're currently in the middle of a um, court – case uh, regarding an illegal adoption and they need money so if you feel so inclined you can go check out their instagram and learn and maybe donate like a dollar do it anyways so just wanted to clarify yes on that i like that clarification very nice um i also have a clarifications corner (laughs) about missionaries (laughs) about missionaries no I don't think our listeners really understand how much we can talk about Legs Diamond, but we can. (laughs) So Uh, for those who were with us last week, we talked about a themed puzzle where there was a diamond theme. And one of the answers was Legs Diamond. And Grace and I had no idea who the hell or what the heck a Legs Diamond was. And (laughs) whatever. Grace has since adopted it as her baseball, her former baseball nickname. Um. After the episode recorded, I looked up Legs Diamond. The first thing that comes up is Legs Diamond, the rock band. And so I just want to say I learned that there's not even just Legs Diamond, the rock band. There is more to this story. So who is Legs Diamond? American rock band, right? Yeah. Okay. They're also called the American Deep Purple. Okay. And their first two albums are Legs Diamond, (laughs) nice, and A Diamond is a Hard Rock. Also nice. They're sticking to the diamond theme. They are. I like that. The sticking to like, you know, like, what is that? You got to find your niche. That's why we have such a specific. <laughs> we do. <laughs> uh, podcast. Yeah. It works. Category. Um, but where did Legs Diamond the band get their name? They got their name from Jack Legs Diamond, <laughs> also known as Gentleman Jack. He's an Irish, well, he was an Irish American gangster in Philadelphia and New York during the Prohibition era. <gasps> Cool. So he was a bootlegger. He was associated with Arnold Rothstein, who was like one of the most famous gangsters of that time. Um, and he survived a number of like attempts on his life between 1916 and 1931. And he became known because of this as the clay pish- pigeon of the underworld. 
Um, and one of his nemesises, Dutch Schultz, remarked to his own gang, quote, ain't there nobody that can shoot this guy so he don't bounce back, which I thought was funny. Classic um, and then, And then I also just really liked this line from the Wikipedia article. On December 18th, 1931, Diamond's enemies finally caught up with him. <laughs> He had like just gotten off of trial. That's what my obituary's gonna say. <laughs> her bullshit's finally caught up with her. <laughs> I love it. So he was on trial for kidnapping. He got off trial. He was acquitted that night. He went out to dinner with his family. Then he went and saw his lady lover. They hung out. You know, did adult things. Um, and then he went to his rooming house. And at four thirty a.m. that morning, his like enemies arrived, <laughs> held his head, and shot him three times. In the oh back my of the head. god! Well, I mean, I guess he kidnapped people, so I don't feel bad for yeah, him. He's also but... a gangster. I mean, and like we glorify those types of characters, yeah, in all types of media. But at the end of the day, he was. Pr- I'm not even going to say anything, but he was probably problematic in a lot of ways that today would not be acceptable. Yeah, but he does have a cool name. <laughs> exactly. And he has influenced, the trickle-down influence to us. We now have Grace Legs Diamond, the former baseball player. Yeah. Well, everyone knows Chelsea's nickname is Cheese. And so we've been <laughs> oh, looking for my nickname to go with it. So I feel like Legs and Cheese go well together. I think it works. So I, could be Legs I also don't think cheese. anybody on this podcast knew that Yes, they do. We me. tweeted about it. Oh, And I think we've talked shit. about it. That's true. Well, now you know, no. And I hate it. So thanks. Um, another corrections corner. Um, this is from the <clears throat> nautical crossword puzzle from Christopher Adams. He published it on November 17th. Um, 17 across was the king's speech concern, four letters. Oh, yeah. I marked that as one of my hits and shits question mark. Yeah. So the answer in the puzzle was lisp, L-I-S-P. But King George VI actually had a stammer or a stutter. So like a lisp is when you pronounce that S imperfectly like the imperfectly. S the, yeah the s's and the z's get the th sound <clears throat> and a stammer is repeating a particular sound involuntarily during speech so well when i was googling him it just said a lot of things just said he had speech impediments maybe he had both um well here's the thing potentially but the clue says the king's speech concern the king's speech being the film about king george oh it was in quotes th- yes the okay. sixth and um the film focuses on his stammer, so his stutter. And, like, the speech therapy, he goes to, like, correct his stutter. He does not have a lisp in the film, so. Well, Christopher Adams, explain yourself. Explain yourself. Otherwise, I really liked, actually, that puzzle. Yeah, the puzzle was fun. <clears throat> Shall we move on to the heights and shites? Yeah. Cool. Well, that was one of mine. Oh, um, sorry. I have an, well, I have just a, a height that I like from The New Yorker by... Cameron Austin Collins. We love your puzzles, by the way. I don't think yeah. you listen to us, but we love your puzzles. If anyone knows him, we follow him on Twitter. Um, this is from Monday, November 18th, and I liked uh, 52 Across, one-time bandmate of Victoria, Emma, Mel, and Mel. It's Jerry. And yes. These are the Spice Girls, yes. if you don't know. If um, you don't know, now you know. But it's fun, because we got a bunch of like random old bands that we have no idea. Or that Legs Diamond yeah. shit. Like, what in the goddamn hell? But we knew this one. Yes. That's um, fun. So it was fun. That whole puzzle was very like pop culture and I really liked it. Yeah. Um, I've got a shit. Okay. This is from the Saturday, November 16th, New York Times by Daniel Larson. Um, so I actually, seeing this clue, I was like, holy shit, this is a really cool clue. And I started typing in my answer, and then my answer didn't fit. And I was like, (gasps) it's because this person put a different answer in that I don't agree with. Uh Uh-oh. 16 down. 2016 election meddlers. Cool clue, right? Yeah. Because it's topical and also, like, 
factual, right? So I started typing in Russian hackers. Mm-hmm. It's not Russian hackers. It was Russian trolls. And I think this answer annoyed me for many reasons. And I think there's something to be said about like the connotative versus denotative meanings of like words, right? So when we think of the word troll, like what do you think? Like a teenager being obnoxious online. Right. There's also... It's not like that serious. You know? Right. There's also the literal meaning of they are like a creature from mythology, right? Yeah. And like folklore, right? Anyway, so just be clear, Russian web brigades are th- like a thing, okay? Um, and they are sometimes referred to as Russian troll armies in the media, like the U.S. media. I don't actually know if they refer to themselves as this. But the amount of times that people refer to the 2016, like election meddling and in reference to the people that interfered with the election and the number of times they say troll armies is very little actually Mm -hmm. to be put into a crossword as fact. Um, So, but my point here is that these web brigades are state-sponsored internet political commentators and hackers linked to the Russian government with the sole purpose of disseminating disinformation campaigns promoting pro-Russia, pro-Putin propaganda, and hacking to gather intelligence on the United States. An element of this is trolling and sock puppeting, so, like, creating fake accounts and, like, posting on forums and, like, commenting and, like, creating dissent that way. Um, But... Maybe this annoyance is, like, just me, but the reality is that the 2016 election meddling was not just trolling. It was state-sponsored hacking um, and a dissemination campaign by Russia. And not only did these web brigades, quote, troll American people with their sock puppet accounts and social postings, but they also hacked our election systems and monitored our political activity for their own gain and for partisan gain in the USA. So... They're not, not serious <laughs> enough of a word. No, it just seemed really flippant to me. Yeah, so, I see that. And especially, like, in light of, like, the hearings that are currently happening today. Yeah. Um, Bad timing. 2016, like, election meddling wasn't just Russian trolls. They were hackers. Yeah. Supported monetarily by the Russian government for partisan gain in the United States. Anyway, happy Monday. So, thanks for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> All righty. Um, no, I like that. Do you have anything else? No, that's it. Okay. I have a couple things. Well, actually, one last thing. Okay. Did I, did I tell you about the Sunday puzzle? No. Okay. Oh, yeah. You didn't like it. Oh, my God. It was wild. So it was Sunday, New York Times, November 17th, um, or is it November 18th, whatever, Randolph Ross. Um, Matt and I could not finish this puzzle because it was so bad. There were so many points when we were filling in answers where we were literally groaning out loud to like, how... How is that accepted as an answer for that clue? Or why would you clue that? It was it was really bad. I'm not even going to get into the theme. The theme itself was really inconsistent. Um, it was this idea of, like, they would give you a phrase and then a grade. And so you had to, like, come up with, like, a, a well-known phrase. What did I say? It's, like, familiar phrases clued like report cards. So an answer would be, like, parenting. A plus would be mother superior. Uh, um, I see. But... I would urge anybody to go, like, read the Rex Parker blog and read about this theme. It was really inconsistent, and it was just frustrating. Um, And I I can't even get into that because I just want to read you um, some of the probably worst clues in a very long time. Okay, go. Okay. 103 across. 16501-16511. I don't know. Eerie PA, as in that was a zip code. Oh. 
Okay, and first of all, who would know that? Who would know that? I mean, Matt's, unless, Matt's father actually would know that because unless you lived, <laughs> like, maybe if you lived in Evan, are you out there? Do you know that? <laughs> no, but like, I was like, you, you just kind of like astounded, like that was accepted. Yeah, why wouldn't you choose a different Erie PA? Could have like a million other clues for it. I know, but also it's strange to have it clued as Erie PA. How often do you see a city clued like that? No, not often. It's usually like Erie. Yeah. Right. Anyway, so that was truly one of the worst clues I've seen in a very, very long time. Um, 45 across, or 45 down, metro areas informally. Mm, I don't know. Downtowns? Herbs. Oh, no. No one calls it that. <laughs> Who calls like, it that? It just makes me want to like, And this is not even going into you like. You like burbs, but you don't have herbs. Yeah, no. <laughs> No, you just don't. You just don't. And I was like, cities? What could it be? Metro areas? I was like, are they talking about like the CTA or the MTA? Are they talking like metro, like a train system? No, they were talking about urban centers shortened to herbs. To herbs. Okay, and this is another one. 76 down. Solomon-like. Four letters. I don't know. Solomon the Wise is what he's known as. Uh-huh. Right. No. They put in Solomon the Just or Just. Anyway, this frustrates me because Solomon is known as Solomon the Wise. And so then when you put Solomon-like and it's four letters and then the answer isn't wise, it's like, okay, but Solomon is <laughs> known for being wise. Well, also Just could is another one that could have a million other clues. Exactly. Yeah. So that was frustrating. And truly, I am just scraping the top of that puzzle. There's a lot to be said about how this is like um, a veteran constructor, right? Yeah. And who it's said that veteran constructors don't need as much editing. And so they get paid more. They don't need as much editing. And then they were published like more, like easier, yeah. easier, more easy, e- e- easier. I don't know. Now you're confusing me. <laughs> anyway, so it's just to say like this could have used some editing. Okay, boomer. <laughs> Herbs. 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 <laughs> Yeah, that's bad. Okay, so cool. That was it. Cool. Should we flip? Oh, okay. Flipping, flipping, flipping. <gasps> Tails, it's me. Tails, here she goes. Okay, so I kind of, I'm kind of worried that you might have picked one of my topics. We'll see. One of your topics? Well, I picked two because they kind of go together, but they're from different puzzles. Okay. Okay, so my first one is from. Um, Cameron Austin Collins, New Yorker, Monday, November 18th, and it's one across, go eater of Mexican lore. No. And it's the chupacabra. Nope. Nice. And then, which we kind of talked about in your vampire one. Yeah. And then the other one is from Christopher Adams' nautical puzzle. And Oh, no, just kidding. Sorry, I lied to you. It's from the Tuesday New York Times um, done by Ross Tr- Trudeau, and it was 31, 31 down, home of the Kraken. Kraken. Nice. And it was C. So I'm doing the Kraken and the Chupacabra. Yes. I love this. No, that's not. I was actually thinking we might have had the same topic, but. Yeah. Um, okay. Before I get into it, there is a term that I hadn't heard. Maybe I have heard before, but anyways, I'm going to share. It's cryptozoologist. Yes. And it's a scientist who studies animals that may or may not be real. And that's what these animals are. Okay. So first, I'm just going to talk about, I'm just going to talk about both of them, not really combine them in any way, except for the fact that they're both like 
myths. Mythical like, scenes. Do they exist? Yes. So I'm going to start with the chupacabra. Um, so chupacabra is actually a Spanish word, and uh, cabra means goat, and chupad is to suck. So it's a, called a goat sucker. And they're called this way because uh, they're called this way, which is not English. But anyways, they're, it, it's said that they, like, suck blood out of goats. Cool. So Puerto Rican comedian Silverio Perez was the one who, like, came up with this name. And it was in 1995. Um, he was, like, a radio DJ and he was commenting or telling stories about it. So that's where the name comes from, the Chupacabra name. Uh, the first reported attack was in March 1995 in Puerto Rico. Eight sheep were discovered dead, each with three puncture wounds in the chest area, and they were reportedly completely drained of blood. Hmm. A few months later, in August, um, Madeline Tolentino, who is the first eyewitness of a chupacabra, said that she saw the creature in Canovanas, which is another town in Puerto Rico, and in that town, 150 farm animals and pets were reported killed, like within a short amount of time. In 1975, before that, there were similar killings in the small town of Mocha, and they had called him, uh, or the monster, El Vampiro de Mocha, the vampire of Mocha. Um, an interesting detail is that multiple farmers said the animals had their body bled dry through a series of small circular incisions. So people think it's like a vampire type thing. Honestly, I'm just going to say it right now. It sounds like some weird mad fucking scientist with like a weird like blood sucking device. Well, some people thought that it was like the work of people, like a satanic cult. That was like, you know, okay. a theory that satanic was going panic. around. Yeah. yeah. Um, even though it's a little late for the sat- satanic panic, I think, in the 90s. Satanic panic was... I think it was 80s and 90s. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, some people think it's the work of Satan and his followers. Shiza. I feel like they wouldn't do that. No, they absolutely would not. <laughs> <laughs> Have you even seen Sabrina? Yeah. Come on. Um, and so it started in Puerto Rico, but then reports started spreading to other countries, including the Dominican Republic, Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, Colombia, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Panama, Peru, Brazil, the U.S., and Mexico. And then, as recent as 2018, there were reports of chupacabras in Manupar, India. Um, a lot of domestic animals and poultry were suspiciously killed in a similar way to how the chupacabra did it in South America. Mm. And some people reported seeing a chupacabra with their own eyes. Mm. So it has, like, spread. It's, so it's mostly in South America, but it has spread to North America and even to, like, Asian countries and wow. stuff. Wow. Okay, so what do they look like? The most common description is that they're reptile-like with leathery or scaly greenish-gray skin and sharp spines or quills running down their backs. They are approximately three to four feet high, and they stand and hop in a fashion similar to that of a kangaroo. Another common description of the chupacabra that came out later is that they have more of a wild dog look. Um, They are mostly hairless. They have a pronounced spinal ridge, unusually pronounced eye sockets, fangs, and claws. Hmm. I think I'm familiar with the second description. Yeah. The kangaroo-looking thing fucking – could you imagine, like, walking down the road and there it comes, like, like, fucking a hopping around at you? No. Nah. Unsubscribe. Well, there are – there's, like, a breed um, of dogs. I think it oh, – I forget what their names are. But it's – they're known as, like, Mexican hairless dogs. Mm-hmm. I think they're kind of Mexico. And they're basically – they kind of look like pit bulls in a way, but, like, hairless, the way sphinx cats are hairless. Mm-hmm. So some people think that those might – or those are sometimes mistaken as chupacabras by, like, regular people. Um, but I think they're kind of cute. People don't like hairless animals by 
I have no problem with them. Oh, that's nice. That's just my own personal. <laughs> well, you were saying you don't like Sphinx cats. I don't. They freak me out. I'm sorry. See, I like everyone. Just put a put a little turtleneck on them and they're good to go. I, they deserve love and affection, just not from me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair. Um, okay, so there are a couple theories about chupacabras. Okay, hit me with the theories. Some people think that they are a product of top-secret U.S. government genetics experiments in the rainforest in Puerto Rico. Oh... I believe that. I would believe that. You don't got to twist my arm for that one. Yeah. Um, some suggest that they are an extraterrestrial being that came to Earth through space. SETI, are you out there? Are you listening? Yeah. So, see, it all connects, okay? So, are they real? Are they? Hit me. Dun, dun, dun. Um, biologist Barry O'Connor would say, no, they are not real. Okay, Barry, <laughs> big old wet cloth. I know. My <laughs> <I> blanket. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> In 2010, he did research at the University of Michigan, and he concluded that all the chupacabra reports in the United States were simply coyotes infected with the parasite Sarcoptis scabi, whose symptoms would explain most of the features of the chupacabra. Hairless, thick skin, bad odor. O'Connor theorized that the attacks on goats occurred because, quote, these animals are greatly weakened. They're going to have a hard time hunting, so they may be forced into attacking livestock because it's easier than running down a rabbit or deer. Okay, boomer. <laughs> Which does kind of make, because, like, yeah, normally wild dogs wouldn't be hunting, like, your livestock necessarily. But if they were sick and, like, feeling lazy, you know, they yeah, just no, want, like, sure. chicken noodle soup. They don't want to yeah. make, like, a gourmet lasagna. Yeah. Okay. Uh, some people were like, okay, well, if they are wild dogs, a wild dog wouldn't leave its prey to just bleed out. They would, like, eat the yeah. – because, like, these animals aren't getting eaten. They're just getting – Sucked a, dry. Yeah. Like, dogs hunt to kill. But scientists say that both dogs and coyotes can kill and not eat their prey, um, especially if they are inexperienced or if they become injured while killing the prey or if they are too sick. They might get too tired from killing Mm. the prey and just walk away. I don't know. Do you believe that? I don't know. Seems kind of sketchy to me. Yeah, suspicious. Mm -hmm. Prey can survive the attack and then die afterwards from internal bleeding or circulatory shock. The presence of the two holes in the neck correspond with canine teeth are expected because that is the way that canines catch and kill their prey. Could right? you imagine if that's how we had to do it? Could you imagine catching anything in your damn mouth? No. We're not meant I for that. I can't even catch a cheese ball in my damn mouth, let alone I a can rabbit. No, our teeth aren't made for that. Like, we have the same teeth as monkeys, and they just, they're like uh, herbivores or whatever. And bugs. Yeah. We should start eating bugs. Start? <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had a bug? Yeah. I feel like I have at some point, but I don't remember. There's a great... I feel like I had, like, um, a cricket or something. Yeah, there's a great Mexican restaurant uh, on the west side. That was the first time I had a cricket. And it's really tasty, but to get myself to eat the bug, I had to not look at myself. Like, I couldn't look at the fork when I was eating it, and then I ate it, and I was like, okay. And it was like... The puree on the plate was, like, a cricket puree. It was so good, and I could just eat all of that, but then they dotted it with, like... You know, fried the legs. And I was like, like. like, yeah. But it was so good. I mean, yeah, I'll eat anything once. Well, it's kind of interesting. It's like we have such a mental thing to get around eating bugs, but like we would eat a chicken. Yes, for sure. Like, I think it's another thing too is like the bugs often still look like the animal that they are. That's oh, why sometimes sure. fish, like when they bring out a fish and it's like has its whole, head, it's completely intact. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> Can you like make this so it doesn't look like an animal? <laughs> I don't want it staring at me. I feel you. Yeah. Um, Okay. Where were we? Where was I? All right. So the two holes in the neck are uh, correspond with like canine. Sure. That's where we were. (laughs) And unlike, okay, the Loch Ness 
monster, or Bigfoot, dead chupacabra bodies have actually been found. Like, it's not like they're completely, like, elusive. So they have DNA tested these bodies, and they all have always been identified as a dog, coyote, raccoon, or other common mammal, usually stricken with a parasitic infection. Hmm. Additionally, when suspected chupacabra victims, like the little goats and stuff, have been professionally autopsied, um, they have never found them to be drained of blood. Okay. Like, other than regular blood loss from being bit. So Interesting. That has not been proven. Yeah. Accord, if you believe... The government. Yeah. You sheeple. That's what they want us to believe. Also, keep in mind, these reports are being done in the U.S., not in a, and, like, most of the attacks are in South America. Wake up. Wake up. Uh, Benjamin Radford, he's an American writer, investigator, and skeptic. And he did a piece on chupacabras that I'm going to talk about. But first, I just want to talk about this guy because he's kind of interesting. He has authored, co-authored, and contributed to over 20 books and written over 1,000 articles and columns on a wide variety of topics, including urban legends, unexplained mysteries, the paranormal, critical thinking, mass hysteria, and media literacy. Damn, busy Um, bee. I know. In 2016, he uh, wrote a book called Bad Clowns, um, and he won the 2017 Ippy bronze award which Hmm. is for like this kind of topic of research and he's regarded as an expert on the bad clowns phenomenon (laughs) um but he has like a bunch of books about all different types of like urban like yeah yeah. uh but he did a five-year investigation on the chupacabra (laughs) and he came out with a book in 2011 called tracking the chupacabra and he talked about uh the first original eyewitness madeline tolentino who i had talked about earlier um, and he says that her eyewitness account, he believes, was based on the creature Sill in the 1995 science fiction horror film called Species. The alien creature Sill is nearly identical to Tolentino's Chupacabra eyewitness account, and she had seen the movie before her report. Um, that was back when Chupacabras were seen as more reptilian, like the reptiles of mm-hmm. kangaroos, as opposed to dog-like. Uh, Radford says that Tolentino, quote, believed that the creatures and events she saw in species were happening in reality in Puerto Rico at the time and therefore concludes that, quote, the most important chupacabra description cannot be trusted. Interesting. So I don't know what her deal was. I don't know. I can't. That's just what this guy says. This I know. guy thinks that she saw the movie and, you know. Scooty doo. Yeah. Now we got a chupacabra. It put mm. some ideas in her head. I don't I know. I see movies every day and I don't get ideas from them. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see. We'll let you guys decide. Yeah, you decide. This is for you. We're just putting it out there for you. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk about the Kraken. Hit me with the Kraken. So the Kraken is a Nordic mythology mythological cephalopod. Mm-hmm. Cephalopod is like a squid. Um, it's uh, The word Kraken comes from the word crake or krake, which is Norwegian, a Norwegian and Swedish word, and it means an unhealthy animal or something twisted. Hmm. Similar to the English words crook and crank. Nice. Which I didn't know. I just thought it was <laughs> like the name of a squid. <laughs> okay, so this is one of um, the first descriptions of the kraken. It's from Danish historian Eric Pont- Pontopidden um, in his uh, book Nation- National History of, or sorry, Natural History of Norway from 1755. So it's a long time ago. Remember, the chupacabra was like just in the 90s. That's right. not that long ago. This is from the 1700s. Um, he describes the beast as being, quote, round, flat, and full of arms or branches. It's the largest and most surprising of the animal creation. 
Legend has it that if you were out several miles into the Norwegian Sea in the summer, you're in serious danger of falling victim to the kraken. A sign that the kraken is near is that a bunch of fish like swim up to the surface because the kraken is like scaring them. So if you like all of a sudden see so a bunch of eerie, fish, you're yeah. like, Ooh. Kraken. The Kraken has arrived. Um, so the Kraken is known to pull ships down with its tentacles or create a whirlpool to do it instead. Hmm. Pirates of the Caribbean 3, anyone? Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> That's The end of that movie is just like a whirlpool for yes. 30 minutes. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> Spoiler alert, sorry. By the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we didn't say what happens. Yeah. Just have to watch and find out. Uh, Krakens are known to emit a bad smell that attracts fish, and fish are the Kraken's main diet. You know, they're fine with just eating fish. They don't have to attack your boats and stuff. Yeah, so don't take your damn boat out into its home. Yeah, you know, just let it be. Um, Krakens also poop out fish, and then they use the poop to lure even more fish because its poop is like... uh, Fish (laughs) like the smell of the poop. This is... uh, I just don't even know. This is from (laughs) Eric... Pontopidan, he says, it's, quote, evacuation colors the surface of the water, which appears quite thick and turbid. Um, the fish are drawn to it, and then the kraken eats these fish and then poops them out again to start the cycle all over. So, well, you got to do what you got to do. Seems easy. I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm not even going to say it. <laughs> I was going to say, like, if humans could eat and then just poop and then just their poop turns into more food. A human centipede much? Yeah, but... Obviously, if it wasn't gross, yeah. it would be convenient. Right. It's <laughs> true. Okay. So what is the kraken really? Um, in some descriptions, krakens appear more crab-like than octopus-like and possess traits that are associated with large whales. So they may have been actually just like fishermen seeing large whales. Hmm. Um, some traits of the kraken resemble undersea volcanic activity that occurs in the Iceland region, including bubbles of water, sudden dangerous currents, and appearance of new islets. Nice. Okay. So fishermen back in the day could have seen that and been like, it's the Kraken. But really it was just like an underwater volcano. Yeah. Idiots. However, most likely it's probably a giant squid, which actually (laughs) does exist. Giant squid is a thing. I love that. It's like, so they had this thing and it could be all these other natural things, but it's probably actually the thing that they thought it was. (laughs) Well, yeah, but the the giant squid is like a real animal. The kraken's supposed to be way bigger than the giant squid ever was. It's probably like a combination, though, of seeing like the volcanoes and um, like the whales and then giant squids. You're like, that's one animal. Yeah. You know, you have nothing else to do. No TV to watch, no podcasts to listen to. You got to make your own. Yeah, you're out sea and you're like, God damn it. I'm bored. Um, Okay. So... The giant squid. Okay. The giant squid can grow up to be 43 feet long. No, thank you. <laughs> uh, unsubscribe. Uh, the poop on the surface is probably just squid ink, the, oh. like, turbid poop. Um, giant squids are still a mystery, though. Only a few have ever been able to be, like, studied by science because they're kind of elusive. No one has seen it firsthand. However, scientists speculate how giant squids hunt, so they've never actually seen it, but Compared to, like, how smaller squids hunt, they just assume it's very similar. Um, they hunt by hanging motionless in the water column. Could you imagine just, like, Hell uh, this no. massive Could you imagine fucking swimming up to that thing? Negative. 43 feet long? It's Ooh. just yeah. still as a newborn babe. <laughs> Those aren't still. <laughs> um, I couldn't think of anything. 
It's okay. So the tip of its mantle, like the pointy head part, is pointed up, and its two long tentacles dangle below. So squids, they have, like, two extra long tentacles. And so they kind of just, like, hang their tentacles until fish or other squid swim into their suction Cannibals. cups. Cannibals. Um, exactly. Which their suction cups are lined with t- tiny teeth. So Nah. Yeah. <laughs> nah. Um, then the squid reels its prey to the to its beak, which is its mouth. So squids have beaks. I hate this. Yeah. <laughs> Jet, please. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> these mouth beaks are commonly found in stomachs of dead sperm whales because the whales can't digest the beaks. So we know that whales are like one of their uh, predators. Yeah. So thanks, whales, for all your hard work. God, whales are fucking sperm crazy, whales. too. Yeah. I feel I, I would rather see a whale than a giant squid. I, don't see I mean, it. I don't want to see either. To be su- completely surprised. frank, yeah. But I feel like a squid, you could accidentally, like, swim up to it, and then it suctions you by accident. <laughs> Shit. But yeah. I, although I don't know if a squid would eat you, though, because its beak is not that big. So I feel like you could... There's f- only one way to find out. Yeah. A whale could, like, accidentally eat you. Yeah. Because they just don't know what they're doing. They don't. <laughs> they're big, weird felt hair teeth. Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, okay, so living sperm whales can also be seen with circular scars around their mouths, a sign that they have gotten to a fight with an enormous squid. Because, like, they get little, like, the little suction cup scars around their mouth. So, oh, So no. dead ones have beaks in, yeah, but obviously they won or they survived. Yeah. So they definitely eat these giant squid. Calamari. <laughs> <laughs> they like their calamari just like us, folks. <laughs> um, but if giant squid aren't creepy enough for you, there's also a thing called a colossal squid. They exist off the coast of Antarct- Antarctica. Um, the species is confirmed to reach a mass of at least 1,100 pounds. Um, however, they have found beaks in sperm whale stomachs that show that some of these may weigh as much as 1,300 to 1,500 pounds. Jesus. Making it the largest known invertebrate on the planet. Um, maximum total length has been estimated at 30 to 33 feet. So wow. that's not as long as the no. giant squid, but I feel like they're just bigger. They're big boys. Big boy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So? I hate it. That's that. Sweet dreams, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Woof. Although, could you imagine? I mean, not to be, like, morbid or, like, you know, brutal. Could you imagine, like, catching a giant squid and then having calamari? <laughs> no. That's it's way like too much calamari. It's, like, the biggest onion ring yeah. <laughs> of your life. <laughs> Sorry, not trying to be offensive here. First of all, you would I don't think you'd just be able to eat them. You'd have to donate to science. Okay, fine. Like this the first one, then the second one. Yeah, you're like, guys, we just this is our second one? Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you were like a fisherman out on sea forever and then your boat caught a giant squid, you'd be like, Hallelujah. We yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. Probably get sick of squid though. I guess you would. But there's tons of different ways you can cook squid. But yeah, hey. but you're on a boat, so you don't have like a bunch it's of true. different, you know. It's kind of limited. You're right. Well, well, that's that on that. That's that on that. Me? It's you. Okay. So, that's that on that. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> so, my topic comes from the Christopher Adams crossword, the nautical crossword from November 17th, um, 14 across. Fruit of an oft-parodied William Carlos Williams poem. Plum. Plum. I've looked at that one, too. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. I thought you might do that one. Because okay. it was a meme. Yeah. Um, so first I'm going to read the poem to you. <laughs> the poem is called, This is Just to Say. <clears throat> this is just to say, I have eaten the plums, 
that were in the icebox, and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. Thank you. So, who is William Carlos Williams? <laughs> uh, he was born in 1883, September 17th, in Rutherford, New Jersey. I am also from New Jersey. Um, and just, that's where your similarities end. And that's it. Also, can we talk about how his name is William Williams? William Carlos Williams. I know. I love that. Yeah. If I was a parent, I would do that. Grace Grace? Yeah. If I Actually, I'd love to marry someone whose last name is Grace. Then I would, in that case, for sure change my name and be Grace Grace. Well... You heard it here, folks. If you know anyone, <laughs> send them our way. Okay, so he was born in New Jersey. He's a Puerto Rican American poet and physician closely associated with the modernist and imagist lit movements. Um, he went to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. He graduated in 1906. Um, once he left Penn, he did a bunch of internships at a couple hospitals in New York um, before going to Leipzig. Um, for advanced study of pediatrics. He's a doctor and a poet. Is there anything this man can't do? I know. I know. It's insane. Um, he published his first book called Poems in 1909. <laughs> he married... <laughs> there were more options of titles for books back then. <laughs> now I have to be a little more creative. Yeah. Um, he married a woman named Florence Herman. Um, her nickname is Flossie. <gasps> I love, I love that. I know. And they got married in 1912, and they moved into a house in Rutherford, New Jersey. Uh, shortly after that, he published his second book called The Tempers. Actually, I like the name of that. Um, and it was published by a London Press through the help of his good friend Ezra Pound, Ezra Pound also being one of the most famous poets from the 20th century. Um, he met Pound at the University of Pennsylvania, which I thought was cool. Yeah. Um, so William Carlos Williams' primary occupation was as a family doctor. Um, but he's known today more for his, you know, literary career as a poet. I love that. I know. That's so, can you imagine like going to your doctor and then you're like, oh, I read your book. <laughs> Poetry book. I know. I like it too. Um, he also occasionally wrote short stories, plays, novels, essays, and translations, practiced medicine by day and wrote by night, which is kind of like the dream, right? Yeah. See, there's, you know, if you just make time for what you want to do. Exactly. This is what Grace and I do with our life. Yeah. So why we do podcasts at 7 o'clock <laughs> in the morning on Thursdays. <laughs> um, okay. So early in his writing career, he briefly became involved in the Imagist movement through his friendships with Pound and Pound's, I believe, wife or lover, H.D. Um, H.D. also went and to Penn, and that's where um, Williams met her. So the Imagist movement was like a lit movement um, for poetry in the early 20th century, and it focused on the imagery um, and, like, clear, sharp language of the poem. Um, imagism called for a return to what was seen as more like classical values in writing, such as directness of presentation, economy of language, and a willingness to experiment with non-traditional verse forms. So imagists used free verse. Um, and then, so like a characteristic feature of imagism is the attempt to isolate a single image and to reveal its essence. The three rules of imagism as posited by Ezra Pound. One, direct treatment of the, quote, thing, whether subjective or objective. Two, to use absolutely no word that does not contribute to the presentation. And three, as regarding to rhythm, compose to compose in sequence of musical phrase, not in sequence of the metronome. So basically they wanted you to like throw out all you knew about like meter in terms of poetry and like use like a more like melodic phrase rather than like focus on like getting your syllable counts in. 
Forget everything you thought you knew yes. about poetry. Forget what saying. Forget it. Done. <laughs> I've been wiped clean. Dunzo. Give it to However, me. However, Williams moved away from this movement. Um, his style changed more to um, fall in line with the modernist movement, which was coming out at that time. And modernism is an artistic movement from the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, and it kind of came into its own, and people t- tend to know it as due to like the increase of industrialization and globalization, new technology, the horrors of the world wars. Um, and it like was what made people question, like these horrible things, these new things, this turn of the century were making people question like the future of humanity. Um, and so, <laughs> mo- yeah, modernist lit uh, was characterized by a very con- self, con- like a very conscious break with traditional ways of writing and poetry, prose, all that stuff. Um, they experimented with form, expression, unreliable narrators, um, stream of consciousness, interior monologue, um, and the use of multiple points of view. These were all very new things. Um, irony, satire, um, those were big points in modernist lit as well. And all of these things together can often make the reader feel like the story is going nowhere, mm-hmm. which I think is like, you know, it's like a larger critique of the times, right? You know, it's kind of like existential like crisis this ennui of like what the fuck is our life even mean yeah um so actually modernist it was like my favorite like time period um and i took a class in college and i loved all the stories and my favorite i was like obsessed with fitzgerald for a really long time so fitzgerald's like one of the most famous modernist mm-hmm. liter- like writers um although i don't like the great gasp my favorite was the side of paradise um and then another favorite book of mine is called passing and that's by um Nella Larson, and she talked about like passing as a white woman in her story. She was black woman oh. passing as a white woman. Anyway, she was really like a, an important feminist and important like woman writer at the time. Anyway, so Williams, Carlos Williams, kind of shifted into this modernist phase, um, and he was sharply criticized by his peers, specifically H.D. and Pound. What you guys used to be his friend? They used to be his friend. They were friends. Wait. What? Oh, that was another Harry Potter quote that came to me. Grace and I have been shouting Harry Potter quotes at each other. Actually, more like I've been shouting quotes at Grace. Um, and I just had one come to me right then and there. Ignore me. So, uh, Williams published a book, and it was like a very experimental book called Cora in Hell. Pound called the book incoherent, and HD called it flippant because they were really, really serious about their image movement. Um, a couple years after publishing that book, Williams published his most famous book called Spring and All, and it c- contained his most famous poems. By the Road to the Contagious Hospital is one. The Red Wheelbarrow is his probably most famous, which you probably read in high school, and two LC. You don't know what I've read in high school. You're right. Did you read The Red Wheelbarrow in Not high school? Not that I can remember. Cool. There's um, a lot of things I don't remember. So the year he <laughs> published Spring and All was actually the same year that T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland became, like, this massive literary sensation. And it completely overshadowed Williams, like, oh, poetic modernism. <laughs> I know. So in his autobiography, Williams later wrote, quote, I felt at once that The Wasteland had set me back 20 years, and I'm sure it did. Critically, Eliot returned us to the classroom just at the moment when I felt we were on the point to escape to matters much closer to the essence of a new art form itself, rooted in the locality which should give it fruit. So this is really important because I don't know if you've read The Wasteland. I've read The Wasteland, and I've also read Pound, 
cantos, I believe is what I read. They're like really dense. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of like rely on like these classical ideas of like um, allusions to like classic literature and foreign language and blah, blah, blah. They're very good, but they're dense. And I had to study it with a professor to understand what the fuck was going on. Williams wanted to like, with moving towards the modernist movement, he wanted to move away from that. He was more about um, like colloquial American English and like yeah. really like bringing poetry as an art form. Make it more accessible. To it makes it more accessible. Non scholars. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So he, Williams like respected Eliot, but he was like very openly critical of his intellectual style and frequent use of foreign languages, allusions to classic and European literature. Because if you, seriously, if you read like Eliot and you're not versed in specific lit, you're probably not going to understand what the goddamn hell he's talking about. And there's, I know I sure would. There's an elitism there, um, I think. Anyway, so. In his later years, Williams actually mentored and influenced a bunch of other poets, like the Beat Movement, the New York School, and he actually had his most famous relationship, not relationship, but he was a mentor to Allen Ginsberg, who we talked about a couple episodes ago, um, who, and like Williams actually wrote the introduction to Ginsberg's first book, Howl and Other Poems, which was published in 56. Um, And then Williams died in 1963 at the age of 79 at his home in Rutherford, New Jersey. Surrounded by family and friends. Yes. So... This is Just to Say was published in 1934, um, and it was not his most famous poem. That goes to the Red Wheelbarrow. But I think This is Just to Say has become more popular because of its meme status. Yes. Um, The poem contains three stanzas, each composed of four short lines. No line exceeds three words. Of the 28 words in the entire poem, 21 are one-syllable words. Only two words are capitalized. William uses no punctuation, um, which is really interesting. It's like, away with convention, free the line, write poems about anything, be local, be American, no ideas but in things. Like, that was his ideology, yeah. um, which I really like. Yes, 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 yes. If it was to be read as a sentence, I have eaten the plums that were in the ice box in which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious, so sweet, and so cold, <laughs> which I kind of like that someone did that. So, yes, this poem has become a meme. Um, people think it started with the account Pour Me Coffee, um, but I think it actually started before then. Pour Me Coffee is just like a like a popular humor account, yeah. a comedy account, whatever. I have eaten the M&Ms that were in the bowl and which you were probably saving for Halloween. <laughs> Forgive me. They were delicious. So sweet. <laughs> um, and then there's another one. Here's a, one from June 2015. Um, Strivrin I don't know how to say their username. I have closed the tabs that were in the browser and which you were probably saving to read. Forgive me. They hogged memory and were so old. <laughs> <laughs> which I like. So, yeah. like, this is all over Twitter, which I really like. Um, and it's probably the most parodied poem in America, says Stephen Burt, a professor at Harvard. Um, Williams himself even parodied the poem when he found a note from his wife, Flossie. So he, Flossie left him a note, and then he wrote it into a poem, which I'm going to read. Dear Bill, I've made a couple of sandwiches for you. In the icebox, you'll find blueberries, a cup of grapefruit, a glass of cold coffee. On the stove is the teapot, with enough tea leaves for you to make tea. If you prefer, just light the gas, boil the water and put it in the tea. Plenty of bread in the bread box, and butter and eggs. I didn't know just what to make for you. Several people 
Call it about office hours. See you <laughs> later. Love, Floss. Please switch off the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. Um, so, and then another, yeah, another poem. Uh, there's another American author, Kenneth Koch, and he wrote, quote, Variations on a Theme by William Carlos Williams, which he also um, wrote his own rendition. Last evening we went dancing and I broke your leg. Forgive me. I was clumsy, and I'd wanted you here in the wards where I am the doctor. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thousands of versions have sprouted up online. Um, on Twitter, it's just, like, because Twitter now allows line breaks, which really mm-hmm. helps, you know, create that kind of, like, poetic look. Um, so why is it a meme? Uh, it's short. It only has 149 characters. So it, you can, like, now that Twitter has upped their character limit, you can, like, you know, do this. Yeah. Um, it's iconic, quickly recognized. Um, you probably read it in English, so like it kind of has that relationship too. Um, the professor at Harvard says, it's just an eloquently constructed piece of English syntax. It's very close to a lot of things we actually say in daily life, but off. It makes it, it's easy to make it funny. It's easy to make it serious. There's lots of breath to it. Um, and he also goes on to say that like, Unlike other memorable poems, there's no meter, no rhyme, and it's much easier to parody than, like, say, Wadsworth. Yeah. Or Wordsworth, sorry. Um, So, yeah, I think that was funny. Um, Let's see. Let's see. Oh, Harris Feinsod of Northwestern says, William's poems are all about line breaks, and they're heavily enjammed. Williams was really meticulous about typography. The critic, um, oh, no. So, yeah, so that's what he said, um, which I think was funny. And then that... Feinsad also said, there's a populist nature to the idea that anyone can write a Williams parody. He really wanted to take poetry out of the hands of the Pounds and the Eliots with their classical references, and he had this sense of poetry arising all around us. I think the proliferative nature of it might have appealed to him. And if he produced the first parody of the poem, it wouldn't surprise me if he weren't happy to see other people doing it, which I like a lot. He's like the Robin Hood of poetry. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you two more examples. I have thrown out your papers from the office, which you were probably saving for no reason. Forgive me. We are not the Department of Record. <laughs> um, in this one, I was like, that is just to say, I have poked holes in all the condoms in your drawer, and which you were prob saving. Forgive me. I don't care. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I think this is related to both Grace and I follow the Spark Notes account. Oh, my gosh. And also... Um, if, if you follow my personal Twitter, it's basically just me retweeting SparkNotes and <laughs> VeggieTale Facts. <laughs> it's true. But I think there's something about um, using memes as a way to teach, right? Yeah. So SparkNotes is really interesting in that way. And then also I've noticed on um, TikTok they do the same thing. Like, teachers are starting to uh, incorporate TikTok into their classroom, and then for assignments they'll have... Their students tried and create, like, viral content based on, like, historical incidences. For instance, I watched a TikTok. One of the very first TikToks that came up last night was someone explaining the relationships between all the countries in World War II. And it was really funny, kind of, like, how they, like, create, like, they use, like, the text and they use, like, different meme elements and whatever. Um, So I think it's interesting to say that, like memes can be educational and it makes these kind of like what might feel like lofty academic type things more accessible to people yeah so no i do love that i was looking up the spark notes oh. tweet to read so yes. this is one that i retweeted 
If your party doesn't have seven rooms divided by color and a masked figure who symbolizes the notion that death is surely coming, don't bother inviting me. <laughs> True. I love spark notes. They do such a good job. This is what recently. On all levels except physical, I'm an ominous housekeeper who definitely knows more than she let, she's letting on about this crumbling gothic manor and the horrible things that happened here all those years ago. <laughs> I, yeah, I love that one so much. Yeah. Whoever's running the spark notes account, it's probably multiple people, but they're doing a great They're doing a really job. good job. Um, so yeah, I think these are good topics. Yeah. Um, no, I enjoyed it. I wanted to look up, there was something else about that meme. The Williams, Carlos Williams one? Yeah. Okay. So I want to add this on to the, um, this is just to say meme, because I just thought this was funny. Do you know the Baby Shoes poem yes. by Ernest Hemingway? Mm-hmm. Did you see that in your research? I didn't look too far into it, but yeah, that's well, another one I think that it gets. They like combine them. So, um... The Baby Shoes poem is uh, it's a six-word novel is what it's known as, and it's it goes, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. So it's supposed to be right. like, you know, you can kind of fill in the gaps of what happened there. Um, however, people have, like, combined these two poems together. <laughs> it's something with, like, when Twitter allowed more characters, like, people combine these. So yeah. um, some of them are. Uh, this is just to say. I have eaten the baby shoes that were for sale. <laughs> Forgive me. They were delicious, so small, and never worn. <laughs> I really love the internet. I just have to say, some of the most creative people in the entire world exist in the internet, and they need to be heard. They need to be heard. Um, well, after they like upped the character uh, yeah. count, people may turn the six-word uh, poem into a longer thing. So this guy says... Uh, uh, for sale, baby shoes, never worn, still in the box. The box is covered with dust, but the baby shoes are wrapped in plastic. The plastic isn't for sale. It's not a package deal. I don't want to part with them, but never mind. Someone just bought them. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Anyways, so just thought I'd bring that up. I, like I think that. you would like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, uh, respect memes, retweet memes, send us memes, follow us on Twitter. We post memes, um, and then also follow SparkNotes. Yeah. If anybody's from SparkNotes or knows people who work at SparkNotes, hook us up. We want to, like, have a coffee date. With yeah. Them. We love you. So, yeah. So, follow SparkNotes. Follow us at the good Eve girls. Follow No White Saviors. Uh, do it. Do it. Do it. Follow us on Instagram. Follow at us on VeggieTales. VeggieTales? Veggie, well, not follow us. But you can follow, follow VeggieTale Facts if you want some, like, more absurdist comedy. Which is our exact brand of comedy. Um, and follow us on Instagram at the good evening girls. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. What are we, Grace? Your favorite weekly pod word crosscast. That's us. Two girls, one crossword. Bye. Bye. Love you.